Hello, and thanks so much for joining us today as we explore a tale of two American cities where child poverty is rampant. In the U.S. South, Atlanta, Georgia, and in the Northeast, New York City. Our conversations today are with Hope Wallenstack, who runs the Guaranteed Income Program for Mothers and Children, the Grow Fund in Georgia, and Sophie Collier of Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy. They've just released a troubling study of the soaring poverty rate in New York City. We begin with Hope Wallenstack, founder and executive director of the nonprofit Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, or GROW. It's In Her Hands program is the largest guaranteed cash income program in the South. It was created to help Black mothers. It now supports hundreds of women for two years with substantial monthly checks. Hope, thank you so much for being with us today. We're very excited about your program. Uh, the numbers are really incredible. Guaranteed income for two years uh, for Black women in Georgia. <laughs> How did you get to the Grow Fund and to this project? I started my career as a fifth grade social studies teacher and assistant principal in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was Incredible work, difficult, but incredible work. I loved spending those days with young people and just seeing their optimism about the world and their future. There were a wide variety of issues that they may be facing before they even stepped into the door and really facing extreme levels of poverty and violence, to be honest. It did not feel fair that 10-year-olds were facing these circumstances and that somehow it was their individual responsibility or the education system's responsibility to solve for it all. And so went went to graduate school for public policy, came to Georgia to work on a, a political campaign here, and really got connected with, with this work on the ground up, organizing and talking to the women within the old Fourth Ward community that later evolved into, into the In Her Hands program and then into the Grow Fund. The Grow Fund was started from talking to women and moms in Dr. King's childhood community here in Atlanta, the old Fourth Ward neighborhood. Um, it was part of a task force that was convened by uh, city council member Amir Faroqi. And that task force asked folks in the community, what do you what do you need for real economic security and eventually economic mobility? And in those conversations with mostly moms in the community, what we found is that there was really just not enough cash to make ends meet. Folks were really skilled at stretching, a, making a dollar out of 15 cents, and yet still it wasn't enough and that there wasn't enough resources and supports to help get them the cash that they needed to really have the agency to solve for what they knew they needed most. And so the Grow Fund was born out of that work. And we now have the In Her Hands Guaranteed Income Program that will serve over 850 women across four communities in Georgia. It's a $30 million project. And folks are enrolled in the program anywhere from two to three years, receiving anywhere from $850 a month to $1,000 a month. So it's been very exciting growth and an ode to Dr. King, um, who wrote about uh, guaranteed income in his final book, Chaos or Community. He wrote, the dignity of the individual will flourish when matters concerning his life are in his own hands. And he goes on to talk about guaranteed income. So in honor of uh, his work and his writing on this, we've named the program In Her Hands. It's caught on uh, among a number of people, guaranteed income program. How successful in your application of the idea 
has it been? I think it's been tremendously successful in building on a body of literature that really has grown globally over the past 40 years. There's been about 300 guaranteed income or unconditional cash programs globally. In the U.S., we noticed these programs picking up speed in maybe the last five years. And now there have been 200 programs across the country. There are about 100 active right now. And what we're seeing from the data is tremendous. Folks are able to solve their own problems if they have the resources to do so, whether that is um, stabilizing their income for a short period of time and just providing a little bit of breathing room or giving folks the capacity to think and plan for the future. And so what every individual needs might be different. And the beauty of cash is that it provides the flexibility um, and agency for individuals to be able to navigate, navigate that as they know best. Was there a lot of resistance to this unconditional cash idea? I think there can be, and mostly lots of questions. It is an unfamiliar, it is a policy mechanism that we don't often use. We often prefer to give people the housing subsidy or the food stamps or something that's in kind, rental assistance, something that's in kind in nature has a really specifically designated use. I think in 2020 um, and into 2021, when the vast majority of Americans received stimulus, uh, received a stimulus check or maybe experienced the child tax credit. I think we started to see folks open up to the idea of, oh, cash is effective. And then we started collecting data on a from a wide range of folks and seeing that it doesn't meaningfully drop folks' employment or labor force participation and that people use it we use it the same way our neighbors would, um, that folks are usually using it usually to for basic necessities to get caught up on bills and hopefully put away something in savings, which is usually the ultimate measure of someone's financial stability if they're able to save a little bit and if their expenses are uh, lower than their income. So we do occasionally run into folks who have questions, you know, how will it be used? Um, would it be more, would other solutions be more efficient or effective? And so um, certainly I think it's a new policy area that we're trying here in the U.S. So many of those questions fair and they do get to kind of the heart of the issue. What is the most direct way and what is the most effective way to solve for poverty? Well, hope you've come to the right place. This is music to our ears because Jeff, uh, you know, wrote the book, you know, Cash is the, the, the answer. It's a solution for children at any rate. But you're talking about $30 million, a $30 million fund. What What's the source of that? How do you get something that substantial going? Yes, it's it's all been privately raised. Um, so this is foundations and also um, other types of philanthropy have all contributed to that $30 million. Luckily, we've seen a lot of local support as well as national support. Everything locally from the Arthur Blank Foundation, Arthur Blank Family Foundation to the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta um, and a few others as well. And so I think also philanthropy is excited to explore this question of there have been a variety of solutions over the past two decades, and we have seen child poverty drop substantially over the past two, 20 years, in large part due to changes in public policy, also the role of philanthropy. And so what role can cash play to also take us sort of that last stretch that seems to be particularly difficult to solve? Well, congratulations on climbing over the cash obstacle. As most of us know who've been working on this, cash has been considered not merely the solution, but the cause of poverty in the 1980s 
spot, mostly Republican scholars and Republican policymakers. So we're delighted. You know, we started working on the child allowance. I think I certainly did in 2015, and the whole staff here has had something to do with that. We want to help keep it going. So what can we tell our audience to show how successful your program has been? What sticks out in your mind? It is not hard to to understand that when parents are more financially secure and they can afford their bills and they aren't moving as frequently, they don't have late fees and are just more financially stable, how that affects kids, how that affects the stress in the home, how that might affect parents' time with kids. Of course, all of that plays out in the data. But then additionally, what we hear and see a lot are the stories of parents who were able to afford a new pair of sneakers for their kids going back to school and how meaningful that was to that kid. Or was it able to afford the sports equipment for the kid to to participate in an after-school sport that they've always dreamed of? Or was it able to afford that summer camp for that young person that was related to their interest. And so when we think about all the measures from sort of financial stability in the home, time with parents, nutrition outcomes, all of those are incredibly important. Um, We see that data, not just in our program, but programs across the country in various contexts. But there are sort of these intangibles around what makes a happy, healthy childhood, but those intangible moments of when you're able to open a Christmas gift of something you've been dreaming about, or you're able to go back to school with the pride of having, you know, sneakers that you really love or the right jacket that fits you and isn't a couple couple winters too old, um, or being able to go to that summer camp, that these are the things when we think about not just poverty, but even shifting into well-being are incredibly important and are the things we really hold on to when we want to see a, you know, a thriving economy. Those things are equally a part of it as um, just being able to make ends meet. Sure. If you can tell us what the application process is, I mean, we believe in cash. We believe in the fewer questions, the better. Uh, So how do the women qualify for what is a substantial not just in the amount of money, but also in the amount of time that they have, two or three years, uh, to uh, to gain this security. So how, how did you get the first class, for instance, of women uh, who would participate in this? We have an application that takes about 15 minutes to complete, and we engaged community members in the entire process of both deciding the eligibility criteria, as well as trying the app, testing the application and making sure it felt like it was asking the right level of questions, just what we needed to know and not overly invasive. You have to identify as a woman and be 18 years or older. You have to live within the specified uh, geography. We're very community focused. So we have four focused communities across the state. And then in terms of income, you have to make at or less than 200% of the federal poverty line. This is really important to us because most public benefits in Georgia cut off at 130% of the federal poverty line. We know folks are struggling even above 100%, above 130, you know, into much into what we would consider consider working class or middle class. So it was important that we include folks from that population as well. So those are the three eligibility criteria for the program. And what does that translate into money, that 200%? What are we talking about income? For a household of one, that's about $30,000 a year. 
for uh, a household of two, so one adult and one child, that's about $40,000 a year. And then for a household of three, one adult and two children, that's about $51,000 a year. How many people make $51,000 a year? Very few. The average income in our program is um, about $14,000 a year across our, our three sites. In part, that's because we're so geography focused. And unfortunately, the areas that we focus on have very high concentrations of poverty. There's high level of need. It's one of the reasons that they're selected for the program. But we do have a small fraction. Um, it's probably around 5 or 10% that are between the 130% of the federal poverty line to the 200%. And then at the end of the program, when their time is over, what happens What happens then? Are there supports built into the program? Yes, we have a we have an offboarding period, which is about the last year to six months of the program. Um, we certainly wish programs like this could exist in, in perpetuity and that we could see federal policy uh, around this. But nonetheless, our programs are time bound in nature. So in the last six months to year of the program, we start to talk to participants about sort of their plans, goals as the program ends. We provide programming with partners on a range of topics, everything from money management to breathwork classes to starting a business. We know that cash is at the root of the issue and that people may be interested in a wide variety of topics that best meet sort of their needs. And so we try as much as possible to work with uh, expert partners on delivering those services. It's not required, but certainly we want to give folks options should they be interested in those types of that type of information. And do you have enough uh, runway to know what happens to the win women after they leave your fantastic program? Right now, we just passed the one year mark. Um, so we don't yet, but we've been learning quite a bit. Luckily, there is a plethora of programs across the country that we've been, we've been able to learn from. Everything from Magnolia Mothers Project in Jackson, Mississippi, to the Abundant Birth Project in uh, San Francisco, uh, the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration. All of these programs luckily offer lessons on best practices. And we do know that the end of the program comes with a bit of anxiety. It is a financial change, which in and of itself can come with a bit of stress. And so we try to think about everything we can do to help ease some of that anxiety and to help folks transition as smoothly as possible, including asking them what would be helpful. Just anecdotally, did you notice a difference between the kids whose parents got, maybe they didn't get funding yet, of course, when you were a teacher, but kids whose parents got funding and kids who didn't get funding? Maybe this was all before you set your program up. Right, right. It was before. And then in terms of our program now, we don't interact much with the kids. The families are welcome to bring their children to events and, you know, we'll see kids occasionally, but we don't directly survey the children um, for a number of reasons. And then we've thought about using administrative data, but that's additionally pretty complicated. You're based on the, you know, women and mothers know best what they need and how to spend their money. And so, you know, you minimize the intervention during this, you know, during the two-year period that they're getting the, the subsidy. So are you optimistic? Are you, you know, I mean, we're impressed. I love the story about your being in the classroom and, and seeing the kids coming in and realizing you know, that's too late. So now you're you're at the beginning of that process and 
And what are what are you hoping to see to come out of this project uh, at at the end? Twofold. One is that even if this program, I think we we talk a lot about really measurable outcomes, and I have an economics background, so I care about these things as well. These really measurable outcomes often tied to finances or employment. Those things are certainly important because they are really linked in our economy to well-being and being able to afford uh, resources to provide for yourself. Certainly these things are important. But overall well-being, being really the key goal, not just sort of the hard financial well-being, but overall well-being. And that takes the form of oftentimes the relationships with your kids, the free time that you have, the choice and agency that you have to sort of self-determine your future, your kids then ability to do the same. We're talking about, for Black communities in particular, intergenerational poverty. This is restricting the choices, not just of the parent, but the child, the grandchild, all the way down the line. And so we think a lot in terms of the success of this program, if 850 families in Georgia had greater access to choice, agency, self-determination, and overall well-being, that would be tremendously successful. And then we think about the impact on public policy. It's been hard work, but a lot of luck, to be honest, on, on some of the fundraising success of this program. But it does enable us to have a pretty large-scale program in the Southeast U.S., an area with one of the highest poverty rates and childhood poverty rates in the country. What can we learn here that can influence public policy in the long term? where our our region has very few state level EITC programs. We know in Georgia that would help uh, nearly 3 million individuals in the state of Georgia. We know that there's an ongoing conversation around the child tax credit. Uh, these programs would be tremendously successful for helping folks get out of poverty and then get towards that overall well-being. Um, so our goal from this program is to generate learnings that can hopefully be insightful for these ongoing public policy conversations, while at the same time ensuring those 850 families that we serve are, are better off, at least in the short term, and then hopefully in the long term. Excellent. Well, we wish you the very, very best with this, Hope, and thanks so much for coming. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's really terrific and an honor to be in conversation with, with you both who have done so much in this field and I think have laid so much of the groundwork for the work that we're seeing today. So really appreciate and honored to be in conversation with both of you all. The recent New York Times headline read as follows, Poverty has soared in New York with children bearing the brunt of it. It was based on the report released by Columbia University's Center on Policy and Social Policy and the Robin Hood Fund. Sophie Collier is the director of research at Columbia. She talked with us about the long range study. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you made news uh, last week, big headlines about poverty in New York City soaring. Can you tell us a little bit about your study and what we should most acutely be aware of in it? We've been running this study out of Columbia in partnership with Robinhood, which is a large philanthropy in the city, where we're tracking the dynamics of poverty and disadvantage in New York, and have been doing so for over a decade. And it's one of the only studies where you have poverty measured at the local in a local area using the supplemental poverty measure. So we're able to evaluate both the effects of various different pu public policies on the poverty rate 
and also see how those you know trends change over time in the city. And what we saw last week, as you noted, is this sharp increase in the child poverty rate and the poverty rate overall for New York, largely attributed to the expiration of so many uh, pandemic era government policies like the expanded child tax credit, boosts to unemployment insurance, et cetera. And it, it was quite disheartening. What the heck is going on? Uh, was this widely anticipated, this sharp increase? In September, the census released the national SPM poverty rates. And in that, we saw the child poverty rate more than double at the national level. And so this was the first time we were able to look specifically in New York City. And we're also seeing that sharp um, increase. So it was, in a way, unfortunately anticipated um, because we knew that so many of the supports that families had been receiving in 2021 were no longer part of their, their family income compositions. What, for example, were the leading causes of this? In this study, we can't pinpoint exactly what, what is driving it, if it's entirely the rollback of different government policies or how it also might be related to changes in employment and wages within the city. But we do suspect that a large contribution is the expiration of things like the federal child tax credit expansion and the rollbacks to unemployment insurance and, and things like that, which led to his, the historically low poverty rate in 2021. I think that like the importance here is also the backdrop of 2021, where we actually saw record low poverty rates, the national level and in New York City. The national poverty child poverty rate was five, about just over five percent. We've never, you know, this is like the lowest poverty rate among children that has been seen on record. It was against that year that then, as many of the policies that contributed to this historic reduction in child poverty were rolled back, then we see this uh, swing, an upward swing in poverty rates, both in the city um, and nationally. Sophie, I'm interested in the length of the study. This started, what, you said 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, so I mean, the project initially like launched in terms of development and I think around 2010, um, but we have our first years of data actually from 2012 and have been measuring poverty, material hardship, and health problems in the city. Several other measures. How it started was there was interest in like, how do we both measure poverty in New York City using a better measure? We could measure poverty using the official poverty measure, but that didn't capture many of these really important supports for families uh, and, and, and individuals through through things like tax credits and, and uh, government transfers. But also the official poverty line is not regionally adjusted, as you guys well know. And in New York City, that feels really different to where we know that the cost of living are so high. And so there was interest in getting a better measure of poverty in New York City, but also not just measuring poverty. So what are experiences of material hardship in like in the city or the acute inability to meet basic needs, like have enough food or being able to see a doctor consistently um, without facing cost constraints? Every year we measure poverty, we measure material hardship, and we also measure health problems. So uh, we're limiting health condition or poor health. And we do that for a representative sample of New Yorkers whom we recruit and then interview that same group of New Yorkers for up to six years. So we have more than 3,000 uh, households in our uh, co or in our study whom we interview repeatedly for up to six years. And in addition to measuring poverty and material hardship, we measure several other different outcomes and experiences such as net worth and service utilization, consumption, 
a whole host of other health measures. So we have a lot of information that we're able to link and tie to this uh, data on poverty, hardship. Well, it came to no surprise to us that your findings are that uh, Black and Latina children face, uh, or what is it, almost twice uh, the chance of being impoverished uh, in New York City? Yes. Yes. And that's something we see in the, consistently over time. And it's just excusable. Um, and it's driven by so many uh, structural factors. And if we think also about those policies that I was talking about previously, that led to these historic reductions in child poverty. One of them is the child tax credit expansion that was in place in 2021. But we now know that since the um, absent that expansion, Black and Latino children are significantly less likely to receive be eligible for the full CTC under current law. Um, so that's you know one thing to consider in these like in terms of those results where we're finding more than one in three Black children and about 40% of Latino children are currently ineligible for the full CTC. And as we sit here, we are waiting for the Senate to vote on the package that was passed overwhelmingly and bipartisanly by the House recently. Do you see uh, if that should survive? Uh, Is that one of the things that you're counting on to turn this somewhat around? What will happen in New York City? How much will we be affected? The way I uh, characterize the, the current proposed CTC expansion is it's definitely a step you know, in the, in the right direction. It's making sure more children who are low income are receiving the full amount of the credit. It doesn't guarantee full access to the credit for, for low income children, and it's largely benefiting children in larger families are, are seeing the, the greatest gains, um, which is important because they're currently Kind of penalized under the current structure of the CTC. I don't have a great answer as to what it would look like in terms of poverty reduction in New York City, um, but I could imagine that a few factors that would undermine its effect relative to what we saw in 2021. The first is that, and we even saw this in the 2021 New York City numbers, uh, the effect of the federal CTC expansion in New York City in, in relative terms on, on the poverty rate, child poverty rate, somewhat smaller than it is nationally because the poverty threshold in New York City is higher. So um, it just takes a more to be bumped above that that threshold. And then also the current debate about the credit is in response to making the $2,000 credit more accessible. And what we saw in 2021 was a, a fully full access to a $3,000 or $3,600 per child credit. Thinking back also to some work uh, done uh, for Century and, and with Jeff, is that the inflation adjustment to the, the CTC, which is actually part of the current proposal and future, is really important because the gap, um, its effect on the poverty rate is undermined as the credit value it diminishes over time without inflation adjustment. So you're steeped in these numbers, uh, and I know that you've got prescriptions and ideas about what has to happen in New York City. If you can take us through that, what what how do we actually get to the root of this problem, what what are you at Columbia advising based on your terrific research? Our effort um, is really to highlight the, these numbers and show the, the problems that exi- are existing in the city. What Robinhood often does is then builds a, a policy agenda and around those results. And what they're focusing on right now are, are many state level proposals 
related to uh, the state level child tax credit, which is called the Empire State uh, CTC or Empire State Child Credit proposals around housing affordability and costs and childcare affordability and costs. Those are kind of some big focal areas that that have also that also came out of the report. I mean, housing is an extreme problem in New York City, both in terms of the cost of housing and people's ability to keep up with rent, which was evidenced in the report. So when can we see results on the poverty rate if such changes go through? I think what's going to depend on is when it's passed and when the if it does pass, when the IRS would be able to implement it for in terms of the tax year. It would be like the likely first time one would see those effects is from the Census Bureau's um, in the Census Bureau's SPM reports. But again, it would depend on on what your income the policy is actually changed for in terms of the tax year. Is this going to be adequate? These changes are we going to fall into another hole in a couple of years? And how I've heard people characterize it, and I agree with it, it's that it's a step towards greater CTC access. It's it's not the same thing as 2021. Um, and there are estimates of its potential effect, for example, on the national poverty rate. And they're notably muted compared to what we saw in, in 2021 because it's a very different proposal. And um, But that said, it also is granting greater access to this credit for many children. So it's kind of, it can be both things at once, right? It, it's greater access. Um, which is definitely a step in the right direction, but it's not uh, to the extent that we saw uh, in 2021 or couldn't expect the the same reductions in child poverty that we saw in 2021. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for coming on to explain, you know, the major headline and the extensive work that you've been doing. We we always appreciate the the work. And I know that Jeff has been engaged in some of that uh, work at Columbia as well and the Century Foundation. So thank you for, you know, for, for giving us the numbers and working with Robin Hood. Hopefully they'll give us the solutions. Well, thank you so, so much for having me. I, I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us on the Invisible Americans podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. But we urge you to visit our website for transcripts, show notes, research, and additional information about our guests and their work. That's www.theinvisibleamericans.com. Please follow us on social media and our new YouTube channel. And our blog posts are up on Medium as well as our website. That's www.theinvisibleamericans.com. Jeff and I will see you the next time.